Hello, and welcome to the best of the FT podcast. I'm Henry Mance. We're looking at three big topics this week. The US presidential debate, the rise of online ad blockers, and the European Union's response to the refugee crisis. We start with the bizarre race for the White House. Wednesday night saw a debate between the leading 11 Republican contenders. Yes, Donald Trump was there, but so too was Carly Fiorina and Tea Party favourite Marco Rubio. If you missed the debate, which was live on CNN, it lasted three hours and it was weird. Here are Cardiff Garcia and Shannon Bond from our New York team. CNN had this kind of weird approach to this debate where they'd try to encourage the candidates to go at each other, right. which meant that for long stretches, it felt like there was no moderator. Right. They just sort of let them hit out. But that's I mean, that's what makes good TV ratings. Right. So what have we learned this election from Donald Trump? People want to see this sort of over the top craziness. People want to see them hitting each other. You know, Trump has been out there on on Twitter, on Facebook, you know, making making these videos, making fun of people like Jeb Bush, you know, people and those play really well. And CNN is a TV network that wants ratings to sell their advertising. According to Nielsen, 23 million people watched the debate. So we can assume that CNN did indeed sell quite a lot of advertising and make quite a lot of money. But which candidates did well? I came away thinking that Marco Rubio and Carly Fiorina did a great job, that they were fast on their feet, they were articulate, they were to the point, mm-hmm. right? I thought Jeb Bush was kind of lackluster and weak. I thought Donald Trump was on his, you know, was on his heels most of the time, right? Yeah, or for, he, for much of the time. Yeah. Um, well, but, I mean, everyone was hitting, hitting back at him in a way. The last debate, there was much more of a, like, hands, hands off, maybe we don't engage, don't sort of don't provoke him. Right. And this one, it was definitely, like, we have to hit him because I think they're all terrified, right? Yeah. I mean, look at his look at his lead in the polls and whether that, you know, we can have an argument about whether that's sustainable, you know, <laughs> into next November. But, you know, where they are right now, you know, they, they are real. They have to pop this bubble. In fact, in one poll shortly after the debate, 60 percent of respondents said that they thought Trump had performed the best, although that may have been because he actually spoke more than any of the other candidates during the debate. What does all this mean for policy? Well, there was not much discussion of particular issues in the debate, such as Iraq, ISIS, the economy. But there was a little hint that Donald Trump may be leading the way with some moderate, yes, moderate views. It seems like now is a pretty good time for what, what's being called like the reformacons, right? The conservatives that are essentially saying, well, hang on a minute, this sort of low tax across the board agenda might not work. What might work is something that targets the middle class and something that acknowledges that it's okay for rich people and companies to pay a little bit more. Now, I want to emphasize, I'm not commenting on the merits of that idea. I'm wondering if the time is now, the time is ripe for that idea to take hold within the Republican Party. Well, I think it depends partially on how influential we see Donald Trump being, right? So we've already seen him influence the Republican debate, say, on immigration, right? I mean, the people, people are taking positions and having to respond to things that he said. Are we going to see the same thing on the economy? Because he is out there saying, actually, we should be taxing the rich more. I'm rich. I should be paying more. You know, he wants to go after hedge funds. You know, these are not things you would normally expect to see traditionally from a Republican candidate. Anyway, here's the debate in a nutshell. It was fun to watch for about 20 minutes, right? That's kind of all you really yeah. needed. The last two hours and 40 minutes were gratuitous. You know? was, <laughs> so I, and I, wonder if the audience, uh, I wonder if the audience will agree. Now, a lot of people would like to block Donald Trump from their internet screens. They can't do that, but they can block ads. And the, the rise of internet ad block has taken a huge leap forward this week with the launch of iOS 9, Apple's new 
operating system which allows users to take the ads away when they're browsing in uh, Safari. I'm joined by Robert Cookson, our digital media correspondent. Robert, why do people want to block ads online? For some people, ads are just annoying intrusions into their browsing experience, and that's the main reason. On mobile, which is most relevant this week with Apple's move, there's another reason. Ads often consume a lot of mobile data and really slow down the loading of web pages. Often this happens in the background, um, and especially with also playing video ads that are um, increasingly being used by online publishers. So faster pages and less clutter. Now, we know a German court actually ruled uh, a few months ago that ad blockers, and it was looking at Adblock Plus, which is one of the most popular, aren't illegal. And the maker of Adblock Plus says it's been downloaded 400 million times worldwide. So why is Apple making it easier for these products? Even if they're not illegal, we know that media companies must hate them. Why is Apple giving them a boost? The pro-consumer argument is that, you know, Apple's trying to do right by its users and free them from the annoyance of online advertising, giving, giving them the option to remove ads if they so please. Cynics, though, might suggest that there's an ulterior motive, which is that Apple is basically sticking a knife directly into the heart of its one of its biggest rivals, Google, which you know survives entirely on online advertising. Apple is also launching its own product, Apple News, which will, of course, include ads in it, uh, which will be unblockable. So you might see this as a quite tactical move to um, boost its own business and hurt those of competitors. So I'm a publisher, let's say, The Guardian um, or The New York Times or, or even the FT. I need a response to this move by Apple. What do we do? Right now, I think you can wait and see. Let's see how many people do install the blocking technology, which is a sort of opt-in service. You need to get special apps to enable Safari to block ads. But assuming that it really does take off, inevitably there will be a big hit for publishers like The Guardian or the FT even. In the long term, what they might consider doing is blocking access to any users that are using ad blockers. It's not very difficult from a technical perspective for a publisher to see that the ads are not loading and then restrict access to the content. Essentially, they would give users a choice. Either you explicitly consent to seeing our ads or you go somewhere else. And we've seen the Washington Post actually have a pop-up to that effect. And just briefly to finish off, the early signs are that on a new Apple operating system, ad blockers are very popular. Absolutely. The number one paid app in the iPhone charts at the moment is an app called Peace, which allows ad blocking. So yes, if I was a publisher, I would be quite worried about this. Robert, thanks very much. Back in Europe, the refugee crisis or the migration crisis, depending on which media outlet you're using, continues. Different countries have shut their borders, the head of Germany's immigration service has resigned, and there's no sign that people will stop risking their lives in the hope of a better future. Gideon Rackman, our global affairs commentator, thinks all this spells gloom and doom for the European Union, which has only just dealt with the Greek debt crisis and is now struggling to come up with a combined response. Here is his verdict. People in Brussels will say, and correctly, that the EU has weathered many, many crises before, often progressed afterwards. I think these crises are qualitatively different because it's not obvious what the way out of the euro crisis or the refugee crisis is. And therefore, I think it's possible that even if the EU doesn't actually collapse like the League of Nations, it will increasingly be bypassed by national governments, which will say, look, we don't have the time to hang around. We've got to start acting. So it'll start crumbling. And here's a more optimistic view 
from our Brussels bureau chief, Peter Spiegel. I guess where I disagree with Gideon is I would draw a distinction between the Eurozone crisis and the migration crisis. The Eurozone crisis is a crisis of the EU's own making. They invented the euro. They clearly created with flaws. And frankly, it had the impact of really devastating lives in Greece and elsewhere. The migration crisis would have happened with or without the EU, and I'm not sure individual member states would have been able to handle this any better without the EU. And frankly, I do actually think this would be one of those crises that will pass. The numbers, although they seem overwhelming, are a very small percentage of the total population of Europe. This is a matter of trying to find housing stock and refugee camps that have been done in the past. I'm thinking the Balkan crisis, where Europe more generally was able to absorb rather large migration of peoples from the Balkans into Europe, and it did relatively successfully. So I think this one will pass. The Eurozone crisis, I think, is potentially more of a problem in the longer term, though. Just to rewind a second there, that seems a little counterintuitive, that the EU, which promotes free movement between countries, is not a contributing factor in encouraging tens of thousands of people to come to Europe. Here's Peter Spiegel explaining why he doesn't think that. Well, let's just try to rethink about how this would have unfolded had there not been open borders within Europe. The Hungarians and the Greeks and the Italians will still have had massive inflows, people trying to get from those countries into other European countries. We would have seen masses of people at the Austrian-Hungarian border still, at the Italian-French border still, and at Greece's border with all its neighboring countries. So these migrants would have shown up in different places, perhaps, and it would have been as easy to get into Germany or into Austria, but there still would have been masses of people at borders of European country. They may look different, but I don't think in substance it would have been much different. The full debate on the future of the EU is in our World Weekly podcast at ft.com slash podcasts. That's all for this week. Our producer was Robin Kwong. Thanks very much for listening. Please join us next Friday. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 